All right, have you ever wanted something so desperately that it's all that you could think about? Have you ever, maybe you're like Ralphie. I love the movie A Christmas Story. Maybe you're like Ralphie and, and, and you, as a child, you really wanted that one item, right? You, you really wanted that Red Ryder BB gun. Or maybe as a teenager, maybe you really wanted to desperately get some sort of scholarship to a school that, that you were wanting to get to. And so you put all of your focus into making that perfect ACT score or SAT score, and, and, and you did everything you could to get into that dream college to get that scholarship that you always wanted. Or, or maybe as a young adult, you really wanted that job, right? Or, or you really wanted that, that, that significant other. And so you put all of your, your focus and all of your thought into finding that significant other for yourself or finding that job for yourself. Or, or maybe as an adult, once you have that job and you have that significant other, maybe, maybe all you can think about is that promotion, right? Getting that promotion at work so that you can continue to make more money and, su- and supply uh, more happiness for your families or whatever the case might be. And I think we've all found ourselves wanting have one one or more of these throughout our life, aspiring and desiring so much to have some of these different things. We found ourselves wanting these things and and seeing them simply out of our grasp, right? They're just this close. I'm this close to being able to get this thing I've been desiring. But you know what happens? Sometimes you actually get them. Sometimes this thing or or, or this, this... this part of your life you, you've been wanting so desperately, sometimes you actually get it. Sometimes it's, you're actually able to get it, and an interesting ha- thing happens, at least to me. An interesting thing happens when you actually get the thing you've been looking for. Maybe this doesn't happen to everyone, but to me, most of the time when I finally get that thing I've been looking for, my mind immediately goes to the next thing. My mind immediately goes to the next phase of life that I need to be focused on. My mind immediately goes to the next toy that I need to have that will increase my happiness in my life, right? We go on to the very next desire and the next ambition in the snap of a finger. And Sometimes we are even left with a dissatisfaction once we get that thing, right? We've amped this thing up in our mind to be this great and wonderful thing that's going to change our life or is the exact thing that we need to be focused on. And the moment we get it, we realize, you know what? What was I focused so much on this for? Why, why did I get my expectations out of line? And we get dissatisfied realizing how little true fulfillment actually came from attaining it. And other times, it's even worse than that. It's, it's worse than just dissatisfaction. Sometimes we get everything that we want. Then we realize how we're forced to also maintain the responsibilities that go with that thing that we wanted. We also realize at the same time, here comes this huge list of responsibilities that I have to assume as my own now that it, this thing is mine. For instance, maybe you and, and, and your significant other, you've been working towards 
getting this dream house that, that the two of you ha- have dreamed about for, for, for many years, this dream home. And, and it's everything you could have ever imagined. It's everything you and your spouse have, have talked about and envisioned about since you began to be dating and, and, and married and engaged. And, and you finally have made it to this, this dream home. And you're looking at it. Everything is unpacked. Everything is settled. Everything is set up. Everything is brand new and seemingly What's going to happen later on that month? Anybody know? Anybody know? What's going to happen later on that month? Well, the utility bill is going to arrive, right? The insurance bill is going to arrive. The mortgage is going to arrive. All of a sudden, your bank account is bone dry from all the expenses. Perhaps maybe a a malfunction happens in the house or in the plumbing or or in the electrical, and all of a sudden, you've got to get somebody to come out to this brand new house and fix this this problem that's going to wind up costing you a lot of money. And then sure enough, you realize you have all around you some obnoxious neighbors that, that play music, and maybe they have a dog that barks all night long, right? Maybe the mailmen refuse to put your packages where they should, or, or the trash refuses to pick up the trash when they should. And it's then that you realize, and you look around and, and you realize... expectation versus reality just smacked me in the face and it's then that you realize that you really should have been careful what you wished for be careful what you wish for I think all of us have found ourselves in situations here and there or like this where we think that if I get this certain thing it's going to fix all of my problems in life and then once you get that thing it winds up causing more problems than you had ever imagined more unforeseen headaches and issues and stress into your life and that is when you get to this moment and you get to this realization that maybe you shouldn't have desired that thing in the first place maybe you have remorse for desiring this thing and aspiring towards this thing and, and, and you, you wind up having this remorse that you shouldn't have desired it in the first place and the funny thing happens whenever you get to this point in your life where you, you realize I should have been careful for what I wish for a lot of times there's someone on the other end of that saying that to you you should have been careful what you wish for and how many times do you look at that person and say oh they don't know what they're talking about They don't have any idea what I need in my life or what I want in my life or what's going to increase my happiness. They don't know what they're talking about. Leave me alone. All right, I'm already remorseful enough. I don't need you to rub it in. And so we disregard them and we ignore them because surely they don't know what's going to happen in my life. They don't know what I need and whether I need this or that. But sometimes it can be so serious that you have to look back at them and say, you know what, you're right. I should have been careful for what I wish for. Tonight, as we get started in our study, I want to talk about one of the greatest, most significant, you should have been careful what you wish for moments in all of human history. Tonight, I want to talk about uh, one of the greatest, be careful what you wish for moments that we can look at and, and, and observe and learn from in history. And at face value, when, you, when we start to talk about it, you may think to yourself, well, 
why wouldn't these people have wished for this? You may be thinking to yourself, we're going to be talking about the church. Why, why would the church not want this to happen? Of course they would wish for this. But as we see the history unfold together tonight, we're going to see how incredibly detrimental this wish was when it was granted. Because the early church unknowingly faced this you better be careful what you wish for problem within its first few centuries of existence. And that's what we're going to be talking about tonight. Before we go back in time to that church that we're going to be talking about, before we get in our time machine and travel back and, and learn from them, every good-to-be-continued TV show I've ever seen always had a previously on or a last week on. And so let's do a little previously on where we got to where we are tonight. Right? How did we get to where we are tonight to be able to talk about where we are tonight and what we're going to be doing tonight in our class on the Restoration Movement? In our first class together, we talked about the biblical basis for restoration, and we learned the idea that, the, that restoration theology and, and the restoration plea didn't come from two guys in a wagon in the 19th century. Restoration theology is seen all throughout the Scriptures, all all throughout the Old Testament and into the New Testament, God expects His people to restore their faith, their practices, their lives back to His original pattern that He has revealed to them. It didn't start with two guys. It started all the way back in the book of Genesis chapter 3. Then in our second lesson together, we said, okay, well, what is the destination for our restoration? Where... Where are we aspiring to go? And we learned it, it wasn't in our recent history. It wasn't in a couple hundred years ago. It wasn't even the New Testament church because the New Testament church was already coming up against obstacles and messing up left and right in Corinth and Galatia and Antioch. Well, what is the destination? Well, the destination of our restoration is nothing short of the church that God intended for us to be. The destination that we are aspiring to together is to be the church that God intended. Not my church, not your church, not Stone or Campbell's or Luther's or Calvin's or anyone else's. Christ's church. And then last week we, we talked about this idea that the, the first step that we have to take in our restoration is actually a step back. The first step in our, in our restoration is actually a step backwards as we observe everything that we do in faith and in worship and in our practices, the way we live out our faith, taking a step back and, and looking at that and, and asking ourselves the question, is this departing to the right? Is this drifting away from what God expects from me to the right? Or... Is this drifting away what God expects in the pattern He has revealed to the left? Is, is this drifting and departing to the right or the left? Is, we have to ask ourselves the question, is this adding to God's Word? Is this taking away from God's Word? We have to ask ourselves the question, is this binding where God has not bound? Or is this loosening where God has bound? And so we saw that by the end of that lesson, any time that we decide to 
drift to the right or to the left, either way, either direction, we wind up putting ourselves up for the most inconsistency and being as inconsistent as the people we point our fingers at. Because once we drift to the right or we drift to the left, we wind up adding and taking away or adding and taking away here and there. And we talked about that last, last week. Because once you start to drift to the right or the left, it's no longer God's will. It's your will. It's no longer God's church. It's my church. It's no longer God's word. It's, it's my own word. And so tonight, as we continue to look at the restoration movement, we are entering the second phase of our study, the, the foundation of the movement. We're going to be looking at the foundation. We've left the introduction as, as we have studied those lessons we just talked about. But as we go into the foundation of the movement, what we're going to be trying to do is trying to understand how things got so messed up in the first place. How did things get so off track? How did they get out of order? And when did the train leave the track, so to speak? Because before we can talk about Campbell and Stone and and before we could even talk about Luther and Calvin, we have to go back and understand how the church got to the point that these men found it. We have to go back and understand how we got to the point that Luther and Campbell and Stone and others found the church. How did they get to the point of needing restoration in the first place? And so tonight, together, we're going to be traveling back to the first few centuries of the Lord's church. We're going to be traveling back all the way to ancient Rome. Any lesson on the restoration movement that doesn't start with how things got off the rails in the first place, I think, is missing a significant message for us to learn. So we're going to go back to Rome and we're going to investigate together how the church was before the legalization of Christianity, and we're going to observe how the church was after the legalization of Christianity. And hopefully we're going to learn some, some lessons together. The question I have tonight is, I don't, I don't know how we can fully grasp the importance of the restoration movement if we do not understand or know what transpired for their to be a need for restoration in the first place. And so that's what we're going to be doing. We're going to be talking about why there was a need for restoration. Why things got so off track in the first place. When we go to the New Testament and we start to learn uh, a lot of things about the church and about everyday life of these Christians, of these followers of Christ, of these disciples, of Jesus, one of the things that we can see is that persecution is an evident reality all throughout the text of the New Testament. Persecution is, is something that we can see all throughout the epistles, and all throughout the Gospels. And when we look back to the church, we can see time and time again that the church was persecuted, that, that the apostles were persecuted, that Jesus himself was persecuted, that all the followers of Jesus all those who wore the name of Christ were persecuted. 
And when we think about persecution, you know, it's, it's obviously something that no one wants to face. Right? I mean, is anybody just like, man, yeah, give me some persecution. I'd love to feel some pain tonight. I don't think anybody wants to sign up for persecution. I, I don't think anybody here would, would, would sign their, their family up for persecution or, or their spouse or their children or themselves. No one would sign up for persecution. It's not something anyone wants to face if they have the choice. Persecution is not something that you look forward to. But the truth is, when it came to the first century church, when it came to the second and third century church, it was a reality that they had to face. It was a reality for those who followed Christ in the early church. One thing to keep in mind, though, I, I want to mention this. Maybe persecution really wasn't what you assume it was. Persecution may have been broadened out to this reality that it never was. Uh, when I was growing up, and I'm hearing sermons, and I'm hearing lessons, and I'm thinking every single moment of every single day, Christians are being drugged through the streets and persecuted and killed every single moment, 24-7 of every day. That's not Persecution in the first century, even at the worst of times, it, it, it wasn't to that extent. I'm not trying to lessen the persecution that the church experienced, but when you actually investigate church history, when you actually look into what the historians say on the matter and the accounts that went on, you're going to get a little bit of a different picture painted than what you have already you know, presupposed based on what you've heard before in your life. We're going to talk about that a little bit here. Uh, persecution, although it may not have been an everyday you know, reality or every single moment reality for the church. One scholar said it, it was almost always on the table, though. It, it, it was on the table for a, a potential part of your day. You, you didn't really know when it was coming for you. They, they didn't warn you. They, they just came out of nowhere. And so while it didn't happen to you every day, it, it, it could happen to you. And so you had this imminent threat over your head every single day. And this threat of persecution, this reality of persecution, is something that Jesus prepared his followers for. It's something all throughout the Gospels that Jesus told his disciples about. It's something all throughout the epistles in the New Testament that those writers prepared the church for. We're going to get to those passages in a moment. But the persecution that we see in the New Testament, I don't know if you've thought about this the way I have, but the persecution that we see throughout the New Testament is, is most, most of the time delved out by the Jewish society. Not necessarily the Roman society, as we may have already thought in our past. Anytime we see the word persecution, I think there's an, an, an immediate assumption that we're talking about the Romans, right? Because the big bad Romans, and they were big and they were bad, but a lot of the persecution we see in the New Testament is, is given not particularly or solely by the Romans, but for a large extent, given out by the Jewish society and the Jewish elite. And we can go all throughout the Gospels and, and see this. And in fact, even with Jesus' sacrifice and His crucifixion, 
of the two, Romans or Jews, who wanted to have a pardon? In fact, when you, when you read Pontius Pilate, I, I think you can, I think it's possible to look at Pontius Pilate and say he didn't want anything to do with it. His wife was begging him out of it. Hey, what do we, no, don't, don't do this. Pilate says this man's innocent. Pilate says this is the king of the Jews. Pilate washed his hands of it and basically said, I, I don't want anything to do with this. It was the Jewish elite that pushed this persecution because Romans, honestly, if we're going to be honest about it, in their minds, they had bigger fish to fry. So when we, we think about the Jewish elite in that day, that's where we see the majority of the persecution in the New Testament. We can see this happen in the book of Acts. Was it the Romans who, who persecuted Peter and John in Acts chapter 4 and Acts chapter 5? Or was it the Jewish Sanhedrin? That was the Jewish Sanhedrin. Was it the Romans who killed Stephen, or was it the Jewish Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 7? It was the Jewish Sanhedrin, not the Romans. It was the Jewish elite who, who authorized Saul to go from, from city to city in Acts chapter 8 and verse 1, wreaking havoc on the church, dragging people out into the streets and, and, and persecuting them and consenting to their death, Acts chapter 8 and verse 1. Was that the Romans who charged Saul? No, it was the Jewish elite who charged Saul with that task. And it was the same Jewish people who later on made Paul pay the price for his betrayal when he converted to Christianity. And when you read all of his suffering and his persecutions, we read about in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, almost all of that is delved out by the Jewish society, not the Roman. So tonight, we're... What we're not going to talk about, though, we're, we're not going to be looking at the Christians versus Jewish or Judaism. What we're going to be looking at is the persecution that occurred between Christians and Rome itself. And so, when we think about before the year 313 A.D., okay, 313 A.D., that's a very important date we're going to be talking about tonight. Before the year 313, Christianity was not protected at all as a recognized legal religion in the kingdom of Rome. At the time, there was a clear distinction between Judaism and Christianity. And what you see on the screen is that distinction. When the Romans looked at the Jews and they looked at Judaism... They gave that religion the title of religio. Or as we can see, think about tonight, it looks just like the word religion. Just have, have an N on the end of it. Okay, when they looked at Christianity and followers of Christ and these people who, uh, you know, claimed the Messiah was here and lived and died and raised, when, they, when, it, when Rome looked at Christians, they didn't see it as a real religion. They didn't recognize it as a real religion or a religio. They realized it as, they saw it as a superstitio. Okay? What is that word without an end? Superstition. They saw the church, they saw Christians as a mere nothing more than a superstition. 
And because Judaism was viewed as this bona fide, real deal religion, they were given certain protections, certain rights, certain uh, things as a real religion, legal protections from Rome. As a Jew, there was a certain level of security and safety that was offered because they were seen as legit. They were seen as a legitimate religio. And so under that reign of Rome, they were given certain protection. Well, where does that leave the church? Where does that leave Christianity if they're viewed as nothing more than a superstitio? Well, if they're not viewed as a real religion, it leaves Christianity susceptible to persecution and threats from all sides. Anyone and any anyone and everyone. When Christians were being seen as a a superstition, what this is saying is that they had absolutely no legal right in their culture and in their their society. They had no legal right or protection at all. That's hard for us to think about. But that is how we see all throughout the New Testament the Jews were persecuting the church. How could the Jews get away with this? Why isn't Rome stopping them? Well, because they were just a superstition. And if you're just a superstition, you get no protection from Rome. That's why we can see all throughout the Roman history, we can see even Rome itself persecuting Christianity. Because they can do whatever they want to this superstition. It's not a real religion. That's what we see in the time of of reigns like Nero and Domitian probably studied in the past, right? So this is the distinction going on in Roman society, religio and superstitio, and so that's where the church was and that's where Judaism was, and so even though even though Christianity was a target because it was just a superstition in their eyes, even though it was a, just a, a, an easy target for persecution, that, that doesn't necessarily mean, though, like we were saying earlier, that it was a daily constant in their life. Because like we said earlier, it was more of an every now and then reality than an every moment reality. Everett Ferguson is a scholar um, in his book on church history. He says, the fact of persecution is not in doubt. Okay, Just like I'm saying, it, persecution happened. We're not trying to lessen that, but he goes on to say, Although it was not as constant or as extensive as is often assumed, it was always present as a possibility. Okay, and he goes on to say, not so clear in spite of confident assertions is the reason for those persecutions and their legal basis. Many explanations have been offered, but they are mostly based on conjecture. And so we can see scholar after scholar that will will say persecution was a serious issue in the church as we read about it all throughout the New Testament but at the same time maybe not what we've always assumed so let's stop here though and imagine whether it is actively dragging me in the street or whether it is a looming imminent threat over my head every day which one do you like right I'm not signing up for either one of those So let's take a moment and and stop here and imagine together if we were the early church at that time. 
At this time, the early church had absolutely no legal right to practice their religion or their faith. Can you imagine if it were us? If we had absolutely no protections, no rights to practice our faith, can you imagine if we were not even recognized as a real religion? but we were relegated to this term superstition. Can you imagine if we were constantly susceptible to persecution from anyone and everyone and there was nothing that we could do about it? How do you think our prayers would sound? How do you think our prayers would sound as a congregation or as individuals or as individual family units if this was the case, if, if persecution was on our doorstep or looming over our heads every single day, what would our prayers be like? Well, all I can use is the prayers that I hear today and relate them to, well, if we pray this way today, then we must have we probably would have prayed this way then. And when I hear today, we hear prayers all the time, constantly and and frequently petitioning that God would allow us to maintain the rights that we've been given, right? Rightfully so. We ask God all the time, God, help us to remain a, a nation that allows us to worship the way the Bible says and for, allows us to practice our faith the way the Bible tells us to. And so we hear prayers all the time that God would allow us to maintain those protections that we've been given in our everyday life. So just based off of that information right there, I have to guess or I have to imagine that if we were them, we would be praying the opposite. That God would grant us those protections. Right? That God would, would give unto us the, the, the protections that we have today. That if we pray about keeping them today, we must back then would have been praying that He would give us those one day. And so I can imagine centuries of Christians, generations of Christians as the time marches on, praying that they could be granted this status of religio, that they could be a real bona fide religion just like everyone else around them. And so that they could be left alone and be able to practice their faith as they please. That's not too far of a long shot, right? I mean, that makes sense to me. I think I'll be praying that as a leader in the church then, that, that God would grant us this safety and this protection and this security just like everyone else so that we could worship God as, as God has called us to. But just like our opening illustration. Just like our opening Be careful what you wish for. Be careful what you wish for. And that's a lesson that the church is about to learn. So all of that, I said, happened before the year 313, right? I said the year 313 is a very important date. So what happened in the year 313 that changed things? You have to go two years before the year 313. In 311 A.D., their emperor of Rome was Galileus. Galileus became terminally ill, okay? Galileus became terminally ill, and he reached out to the church to pray for him in his time of need. He reached out to the church, to God's people, to the people who followed Christ, to the people 
who were not even seen as a real religion still to this point, he reached out to them and said, can you please pray for me on my behalf? Galenius had a, a track record of being kind to the church. and In fact, he, you can look at church history, he even gave the church back some possessions that former emperors had stolen from them. And so Galenius was an ally to the church in some respects, and so he gives this edict, right? He gives this edict of toleration. We're going to tolerate the church. We're going to be toler tolerant to Christianity, but not necessarily make them a religion. Well, so that set the precedent. That opened the door. It creaked the door open for the church to be recognized as a real bona fide religion. However, this only happened in the east of Rome. The kingdom was divided at that time between east and west, and so Galenius was the Roman emperor of the east. Well, two years later, the west joins them. And so you have Constantine in the west and Licinius in the east, and these two emperors agree together with the Edict of Milan in 313 Christianity is a real bona fide religion. And so we have this moment of celebration, right? Christianity is a real religion. Christianity has been given protections and security and all the things that they've been praying about perhaps for centuries. Because Constantine and Licinius together issue this edict of Milan, Christianity just as protected as everyone else in the society. And therefore, the church has been given certain rights and certain protections under Roman law, just like Judaism and everyone else. Yay! Right? Woo! Christianity is just like everybody else. We don't have to worry about persecution anymore. We don't have to worry about people beating down our door any, any, anymore. And in some ways, absolutely, right? I mean, absolutely we should celebrate this in some respects. But I'll be honest with you, when I read the New Testament, I'm not sure God has a preference on whether or not His children are persecuted or not. I'll take it a step further. I'm not sure that the New Testament encourages persecution from God's followers that persecution produces a better Christian than non-persecution. But, okay, hey, for now, let's just take the win, right? Christianity has won this big uh, rights, this big protection. Christianity is now able to spread its wings and fully fly and do whatever they want to do as a real religion. Well, 67 years later, Emperor Theodosius I issues the Edict of Thessalonica. And this Edict of Thessalonica changes everything. He takes it even a step further. And this Edict of Thessalonica, to the other side there, it says Cunctos Populos. That was the name for this edict. Most people called it Cunctos Populos. What it means, that word means all peoples. All people. And what this edict said is not only is Christianity a recognized religion, this edict says that Christianity is the only religion that you can follow. 
It says that Christianity is the only real religion. It has now become the official and sanctioned state religion. What a phenomenal moment for the church, right? The church has now become the only choice in town. The Romans have chosen Christ. They've chosen Christianity. They've chosen the church. And now the church is free to do whatever they want. Instead of separation of church and state, we see the marriage of the two. The state and the church are now married. But wait, wait, wait a second. If Christianity is required, what does that mean for everyone else? What does that mean for all the other religions out there? What does that mean for all the people who don't agree with Christianity? Well, sorry, but now it's their turn to be persecuted. Now it's that religion's turn to be persecuted by Christians. Whoa, whoa, I don't want that. I didn't sign up for that. I, I, don't, I would never want that, but sorry, guess what? It's now the official religion of the Roman Empire, and there is now no more choice. And so as we see these edicts happen throughout time, the long-term effects of this state-run religion are devastating to the church. It is the worst thing that ever happened to the church. Because instead of God ruling the church, who rules it now? The emperor. Instead of God being the, the ruler and the king of the church, the emperor was. Instead of elders in the local church shepherding, the government has become the shepherds. Instead of free will moral agency, they have now been forced into totalitarian morality. Instead of Christ's church founded in the first century, it is now the Roman Catholic coterminous church founded in the fourth century. What is this idea of coterminous? Well, it means that they are dependent upon one another. They are coterminous means they depend on one another to survive. The church now depends on the state to survive, and the state now depends on the church to survive. They aren't separated anymore. They are now married in coterminous relationship. And so the boundaries of the state and the boundaries of the church are now the same. If they can use the military to go and fight off enemies when it comes to land, well, surely they can go and fight off enemy doctrines with that same military that are attempting to change their theology. And so as we see this time go on and roll on forward and forward, as one emperor would come in and start making his demands on the church, as soon as they got used to those demands, Here's the time for the next emperor to go and make his demands and his changes to the church and his doctrines. And time rolls on and on and on like this spiral staircase. Darker and darker as you go down it. The church became more and more unrecognizable. Instead of the church being conformed to the image of their head, Jesus Christ, 
the church was now being conformed to the head of Rome, which was the emperor. And as the years went by and as time passed on, the church went further and further and further away from what God intended. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 27, we've said this is the theme verse for our class and our study of the restoration movement, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. That's not the church anymore. As time went on, the emperors and the popes and the leaders changed the church more more and more. And so they were no longer his glorious church. They were no longer without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. They were not holy and without blemish. They had wrinkles and spots and blemishes from head to toe. Be careful what you wish for. As the early church thought about this persecution, the immediate answer for them was, of course God would want us not to be persecuted. Of course God would not want us to have to suffer this persecution anymore. As we look at the early church, I'm not saying the church in 311 A.D. was perfect. We discussed a couple of weeks ago how the church in A.D. 60 and 70 was already in need of restoration. It's already off the rails. But now, instead of being forced to trust in God, the church is trusting in man. Instead of being forced to, to proclaim their faith, they don't have to proclaim their faith because it's the now recognized religion. Instead of being forced to trust in their future home, just satisfied where they're at. Instead of being forced to stand up for doctrine and truth, it was all taken care for them. It was a hakuna matata, right? No worry situation in the church now because of this. And if we go back to the New Testament, we can see that this could not be further from what God intended. This could not be further from what God intended talked about Christianity was going to be. This could not be further from what God's Word presents for the Christian faith. If you were to go to Matthew chapter 5 and verse 10 in the Beatitudes, Jesus says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. If you were to go to Matthew chapter 10 and verse 22, Jesus would say, And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But he who endures to the end will be saved. If you were to go to John chapter 15, verses 18 through 19, Jesus would say, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, well, the world would love its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. If you go to Acts chapter 5 and verse 41, this is one of the persecution moments we talked about earlier with the Jewish Sanhedrin, Peter and John. In Acts chapter 5 and verse 41 it says, So they departed from the presence of the council rejoicing 
they had been counted worthy to suffer shame in his name. In Romans chapter 5, verses 3 through 4, Paul would say, And not only that, but we also glory in tribulation. Knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance, character, and character, hope. In James chapter 1 and verse 2, James would say, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. In 1 Peter, we see multiple times this idea of persecution in the church. And he says in verse 16 of 1 Peter chapter 4, Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. But what? But let him glorify God in this matter. And so we see time and time again that the church was intended to grow through persecution. And that's what we saw. For 300 years, the church was growing under this cloud of persecution above them every day. And it's because the church rejoiced in that tribulation They were exceedingly thankful for it. They were glorying in the fact that they were able to suffer shame for Jesus. They glorified God when they were persecuted. They counted it as joy for them. Why? Why? Why would the church glory in persecution? Well, Romans 8 and verse 18 tells us why. It says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy of being compared to the glory that will be revealed in us. The church, the early church, the, the, the Christ church knew that persecution was something to glory in because it only reminded them of the glory that was to come. Because persecution produces perseverance and character and hope. Once the persecution ended, guess what the church no longer had? The church no longer had perseverance. It no longer had character and it no longer had any hope at all. Instead of being able to solely focus on this everlasting hope of heaven, they could only focus on this mortal hope that was around them. The amazing thing about the church of the New Testament was that when persecution arose, guess where it was directed from? It was always from the outside. You couldn't see any persecution within. All you saw was persecution from without. But now, after 380, guess where the persecution comes from? It comes from within. Brothers are fighting sisters, and sisters are fighting brothers in Christ. The persecution isn't without anymore, it's from right beside you. If you dare to disagree with what the emperor has imposed on the Bible, and on faith, and on worship, if you disagree, you're persecuted. Because the emperor and the pope have now risen to the same status of Christ himself. External forces before this were the only thing the church had to worry about. But now they were being persecuted by internal ones. 
when those outside did not understand the church and understand Christianity, understand Christ, it makes sense for them to persecute you. It doesn't make sense for a brother to persecute you. It doesn't make sense for someone who is supposed to wear the name of Christ to be persecuting you. But once the church became that source of persecution, that haven of one of the greatest reasons to be in the church is the family that we have. One of the greatest reasons of being in the church was taken away. Why would I want to be in the church? You just persecute one another and you go around persecuting everybody else. Tonight I know that we haven't talked about the restoration movement in itself. I realize that. But I think before we can talk about the formation of the movement, restoration movement, before we can talk about the formation, we've got to talk about the foundation. We've got to talk about how and why there was a need for restoration in the first place. One of my favorite metaphors in Scripture is when Jesus refers to his children as sheep. I just I love this idea of Jesus being my shepherd and me being his sheep. I love visualizing Jesus that way. Lately, I've been seeing some posts on social media where they will find in New Zealand or, or wherever it might be, they'll find sheep that is overgrown. They haven't been sheared in many, many years. Have you seen any of these? This sheep that has been in the wilderness and has been gone for, for years and years, sometimes six or seven years before they're ever sheared by the shepherd. And these sheep are so overgrown, they can hardly stand. Have you seen this? And sure enough, they'll finally go to the shepherd. The shepherd will find it. And sure enough, its knees are buckling under the weight of its wool. For one reason or the other, they got separated from the flock and they were alone with by themselves. And when you find them, they're almost completely unrecognizable. The most wool ever sheared off of one sheep was over 91 pounds. 91 pounds of extra wool. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine that? 91 pounds of wool. And when you get a sheep in this bad of a condition, they're really dangerously close to death. But as the videos show, and as we know about sheep, if you will shear that sheep, if you will shear it and cut it back to its original, its original form, it'll make it. If you get all those layers shaved away of those many different years of neglect, it'll look like a sheep again and the sheep can live on. It is a difficult process to rehabilitate this kind of sheep. And the mats in the hair and the wool make it a difficult thing, and there's a lot of pain along the way. There's a lot of nicks and some blood, but at the end of the process, the sheep, layer by layer, is going to slowly look like that sweet-looking sheep. 
in our study of the restoration movement, we are going to be slowly shaving off the layers of the church throughout history. Shaving off these unneeded layers that have made the church unrecognizable, just like this sheep. Shaving off the layers of this sheep that is slowly but surely almost about to die and has almost lost all form of being able to be called a sheep. Just like that sheep was in need of desperate attention. That's what we're going to be doing in this class. Looking through the history and letting go of all of that excess baggage that the church had. And when we think about those layers that we're going to be shaving away, there's going to be some pain that we're going to see. Some pain. Some, some growing pains that we see throughout the way as we look through history. As we look at Luther and Calvin and Stone and Campbell. But one thing is true. It doesn't change our responsibility to this sheep. It doesn't change our responsibility to the church. Even though it's going to cause a lot of pain. It's our job to rehabilitate it to its former glory. For now, we have just discovered this awful looking sheep in the wilderness after looking at Rome and all that Rome did to distort the truth and distort the image of the church and what Christianity is supposed to be. We are now, as a class, looking at the sheep represents the church. We're looking at a very ugly sheep, I'll be honest with you. Rome did a lot of damage to this sheep. But for the remainder of our class, we're going to start cutting back those layers little by little. And it's time to reform that sheep back to its former glory. But that story is to be continued. Before we depart tonight... Let's uh, go to God in a word of prayer. Our dear most kind and gracious Heavenly Father, we again for this time that you've given us to study and open up your word and think about persecution and think about uh, the glory that comes from it. We pray that, as Paul said in 1 Thessalonians, that all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution, Lord. We are aspiring. We are, we are trying to live godly lives in your Son because of that we should be facing persecution every day Lord as we go throughout life persecution verbal from our co-workers and our neighbors as we try to be different from the world around us Lord I pray that you'd help us help us to be different help us if persecution does come to be able to face it the way the first century church did and the way you would have us we pray that we would be blessed in it Lord, as we continue this class, we pray that we can continue to look back at our past and learn from it so that it is not repeated in our lifetime, but that we can go back and see what it takes to be that glorious church without spot and without wrinkle. It's in your Son's name that we pray. Amen.